Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and Happy New Year and welcome to These Times. I'm Tom McTague. And I'm Helen Thompson. So for this episode, our first of 2024, we thought we'd try to pause a bit and assess where things are in the world geopolitically, casting our mind back through 2023 and then forward to what threatens to be a really quite momentous year ahead. 2023 was the year Ukraine's resistance against Russia really ground to a halt. Israel and Hamas went to war and the world's shipping lanes were dragged into this geopolitical mess that we're in. But 2024, if anything, looks to be even more pivotal. And I think we can call it the year of the elections. In fact, globally, more voters than ever in history will head to the polls in 2024, with at least 64 countries, plus the European Union, holding elections. This amounts to almost 50% of the world's population, and they are absolutely crucial for how the world will look for the rest of the decade. In Taiwan, for example, we've got elections in January, then in Indonesia in February, India in April and May, the EU in June, Britain at some point before January 2025, and of course, the big momentous one, the United States in November. So the question that we're going to ask for this week's episode is, what happened in 2023? And what might it mean for 2024, particularly in the context of all these elections? Iran and Saudi Arabia are to resume diplomatic relations in a deal brokered by China, which took the world by surprise. It's been confirmed that Yevgeny Prigozhin, head of the Wagner Group, was on board the private jet. Now leaders from across West Africa are set to meet for an emergency summit following the coup in Niger. The French ambassador, we want him to go back. Former US President Donald Trump says he will be indicted for a third time. The summer counteroffensive in Ukraine is drawing to a close without making the break breakthroughs so many had hoped for. More than 700 Israelis are now feared dead. Iran has again warned that the bombardment of Gaza could have far-reaching consequences for the region. In Israel, the new year began with air raid sirens in Tel Aviv and other areas after Hamas launched more rockets, and there was no let-up in the airstrikes hitting Gaza, with at least 24 people killed. 
So, Helen, I, I actually feel quite daunted trying to think about the big picture. You mean you spend so long wrapped in the news that it's hard to pull back and think about all the things that happened last year and what might come in 2024. So let's try and break this up. Let's start with the economic picture. I mean, looking back, I, I wrote a piece for Unheard about this. You go back to September 2022, when Liz Truss accidentally caused a kind of financial crisis. At that point, inflation was already high. The Ukraine war was raging in February. Sunak becomes prime minister in October. And then he makes his five pledges in January, which were to halve inflation, grow the economy, reduce national debt, cut waiting lists in the NHS and pass new laws to stop the small boat crossings. Now, I think much of 2023 was set against this kind of economic backdrop of, of high inflation, rising interest rates, and this global energy shock, which was beginning to ease. Now, we're going to talk about Britain specifically in the second half of this episode, but I think we should have a look at the big picture globally. So, Helen, can you take us through kind of where we are, where we were economically in 2023? Yeah, I think if we start at the beginning of the year, we can see that there were a lot of fears still about inflation, including in relation to the energy situation for the winter in Europe, really across um, Europe. So there was the clear worry that inflation was going to continue to rise in any context in which Europe had a particularly cold winter and struggled with rising gas prices in particular. I think that clearly isn't the way that things worked out for a number of reasons. The winter across much of Europe was pretty benign, the latter part um, of the winter at the beginning um, of 2023. And if we look at the inflation rates um, across advanced economies, or at least Western advanced economies, they started to come down. Now, what was notable about Britain was that it, the inflation rate for Britain came down significantly at a significantly slower rate than it did elsewhere. And we can talk about what the political implications of that might be in the second half. But I think that there's a way of reading the first part of the year as a lot of fear that didn't necessarily materialise into anything like worst case scenarios. And I, I think that that in a way also is tied to the China question, because what I think quite a number of people expected was this, that China's economy would grow more rapidly than it did in 2023, because China had put zero COVID um, policies um, to um, an end. And uh, more rapid growth in China would have also acted as an inflationary um, pressure. Again, that, that's not what really happened. But I think is what's notable is that we're still ending up with a year in which interest rates through the first half continued to rise. So the Fed and the Bank of England were still raising rates through the first half of the year. And although the inflation situation is not anything like what it was, we're still not yet into a the downward trajectory where interest rates are concerned. We can see it coming, but we're not actually there yet. So it's not a straightforwardly benign economic picture uh, at all. And I think the crucial thing in a way, though, is that inflation's come down in significant part because growth remains, if we look at it in terms of a world economic perspective, growth remains pretty stagnant. 
And so that raises like questions as to what happens to inflation if the world economy really gets going again. I mean, it sounds as if the economics are more benign than we thought they would be. But I'm just trying to think politically, the effect of the economic situation in 2023 is actually, you know, quite difficult for people because the way that they are feeling it is through rising prices, rising interest rates and sluggish growth. So people's actual living standards are getting worse. And that is after a a long period of stagnation. So is there a kind of political lag on the economics being better than we thought they would be? Well, I think that this is where we need to like broaden out a bit into the the geopolitical picture is I, I think that there's no doubt that the political repercussions of the fall in inflation have not been what incumbent politicians would have hoped for them to be. And that's, I think, true you know, for, for Britain, like we'll talk about in the second half. But I think it's also true for Joe Biden, where he has pretty you know, like low levels of approval rating, despite the fact that if you just describe it in a macro sense, that the economic conditions in the United States don't look like they're those, particularly where employment was concerned, that fit with a president who is in so much domestic political trouble with an election coming up. But I think that part of the reason why, on top of the actual living standards issue, which I'm not trying to minimise at all, is that the the turn towards more benign economic conditions, particularly in the second half of the year where inflation is concerned, doesn't quite come through, is because the overall picture of the year, I think, is one still in which there is a considerable sense of risk, insecurity and turbulence. And that's where I think that we can't quite separate out the geopolitics from the domestic economic. Now, that isn't to say that actually lots of voters are thinking, oh, I'm really worried about what's going on in the Red Sea. I don't think it kind of works like that. But I think that once we get onto this question, which we're going to go to about the world's shipping lanes and what it means for trade, then we can see, I think, a sense of pervasive uncertainty. And that does actually manifest itself in concerns about the economy. And I think in a way, what we should do here is turn to this question of like how we ended up in 2023 with these really important shipping lanes for the world economy all becoming quite central to conflict during the course of 2023. This didn't obviously start in 2023, but it's got a history to it, a long history and a more recent history. But if we just take three, we've got the Black Sea, where we've got the war between Russia and Ukraine, and the one place where actually Ukraine has been relatively successful, particularly in the latter part of 2023, was in terms of, of hitting Russian naval targets in the Black Sea. We've got the South China Sea and the Pacific more generally around um, the Chinese in relation to in, in in relation to China. We've got the Taiwan conflict and another country which we're going to turn to the Philippines in a moment. And then we've got what happened, what is happening right now in the Red Sea in the context of the war between Israel and Hamas. And these are really important 
bits of the world's waters where trade is concerned, the Black Sea, particularly in relation to food. But if you take like the, the South China Sea, you've got about a third of of maritime global trade going through there you've got significant amounts of trade going through the red sea and up through the suez canal and these are now all central points of conflict in the world helen how do we understand this though because in one sense when you look at global politics you see xi jinping going to the united states and meeting joe biden in san francisco and actually something of a kind of rapprochement happening there certainly it doesn't seem, the relationship doesn't seem as bad as it did. And so that great kind of strategic rivalry between these two superpowers, in some sense, is easing, and that should have benign effects for all of us. And yet, we're having this sort of geopolitical meltdown on the seas everywhere. Is that understood as kind of spillover, ultimately, from the Russian-Ukraine war, or is that actually, is there something bigger behind that, which is US-China? I think that this is a this is a, like a really important question that we should talk about, Tom, in terms of how connected these conflicts are and whether that there's an underlying question about US power and particularly US naval power. Now, in this respect, the conflict in the Black Sea is different. I think that what's kind of important there is the fact that Russia is having its strategic interests hurt at the time in which militarily in the land war, it's actually in a better position than it has been for a long time. And that will raise questions about whether Putin is really going to carry on being willing to have grain deals that would allow Ukraine to ship food out through the Black Sea. And that would have, if he's not, that will have pretty significant consequences. I mean, if he's not on a kind of near permanent basis, that would have pretty significant consequences for the world economy. Because if you look at the first part of the war in 2022, when there was no grain deal in place, then extraordinarily high food prices, particularly for the countries that most were affected was a very important part of, of what was going um, on. But that isn't really a question about American naval power, whereas I think the questions about the Red Sea and the question about the Pacific and the South China Sea, these do really touch on American naval power. And I don't think that we should forget that actually American naval power has actually been fundamental to the way in which the world economy has worked, really since at least since the end of the, uh, well, really since the end of the Second World War, that in that sense the whole global trading system has rested on the willingness of the U.S. Navy to keep shipping lanes open, and at periods in which that's very been very difficult for the U.S. Navy for various reasons. Think back to like the 1970s when. It wasn't until the end of the decade actually really present in the in the Persian Gulf. Then we've seen a great deal of economic difficulty. So if we're heading to that direction again, then we're back to serious economic risk. 
Yeah, I mean, Helen, the really big picture, if you pull back from this, I remember speaking to someone very senior in the British government about this, is this kind of Kissinger-esque way of looking at the world, is that the United States took over Britain, this role as the great maritime power of the world. And what you're seeing today is a challenge between the maritime power and these potential Eurasian land powers of uh, China and Russia, and then which one is going to be more important and how you and who is going to control these things. And obviously, American power is fundamentally resting on its ability to control the sea. And I think it's in a way, it's quite it feels quite old fashioned to think about the world like that. But then when you look at a map and you look at what's at stake in, say, Taiwan or the Philippines and which we're going to come to, then it, it really is about your ability to project power on the sea rather than on land. Yeah, I think if we think back to something that we have talked about during the, the course of the last year, or we did last year, more than once, I think, which was uh, Obama's pivot to Asia, which was supposed, as we know, to be saying, look, the Middle East is going to be a lower strategic priority for the United States now. The Pacific in relation to China is going to be much more um, important. That's what the pivot was. One part of that was increasing naval um, presence in the Pacific in relation to the um, the Persian um, Gulf. And as we know, that the pivot to Asia has been much, much more complicated than uh, Obama thought. And I think we can see now, in a way, the basic predicament that the United States faces here in action really right in front of our eyes. If we look at the immediate aftermath of Hamas's attack on Israel on the, the 7th of October, what Biden did was to send two US aircraft carriers, Gerald Ford into the eastern Mediterranean and the Dwight Eisenhower into the Persian um, Gulf to act as a deterrent against both Iran and Hezbollah getting themselves involved in the conflict. What we've literally seen in the last 24 hours is the Gerald Ford being withdrawn, going back to the United States. Now, quite why that is and what that means, I think it's probably like too early to tell. But I think that it does, if we just look at it in a, in a general sense without knowing too much about the actual particularities of the last 24 hours would say that actually for the United States, keeping these two aircraft carriers around the Middle East comes with consequences, comes with costs. It's an opportunity cost. Now, that doesn't mean that it's going off to the Pacific. But if we look over on the other side of the world, in the South China Sea, we can see that there is some important things have been going on during the course of this year. So whilst on the one hand, as you said, Tom, there's actually been some thawing in US-China relations in the aftermath. I mean, if we think of it, the peak of that as the peak of the tension being around like Taiwan after Pelosi's visit, that's what led the Chinese to pull out of the ongoing climate negotiation talks with the uh, Americans. Then there was the meeting, as you said, between Xi Jinping and, and Biden in San Francisco. Later in the year, the climate talks were um, starting again. But during the course of this year, we've seen the, the tension in the South China Sea really, I'd say, being between China and Philippines, rather than quite so much the, the Taiwan um, questions. And what we've seen here is the fact that the president of um, Philippines, Ferdinand Marcos Jr., who was elected 
last year has really changed the direction of Philippines, the Philippines foreign policy towards being much more favourable to the United States. What had been the previous president who in the first years of office was really implementing his own pivot towards China has gone off in the, the other direction. And this year we've seen an agreement to establish American military bases in the Philippines that China's made clear is completely unacceptable. Then the Philippines, as we know, has had a, a long history of being an important to American security arrangements in the in the Pacific. And I think what all this put together raises is the question as well, if the world economy requires the United States to act as a maritime power, the maritime power um, around the Persian Gulf and the Red Sea, then can it at the same time engage with these questions around China in the South China Sea? And I guess that's where countries like Britain and other American allies in the US who might be able to project a little bit of maritime power might be able to sort of start to exert some leverage or some independent power, perhaps. This is an opportunity for Britain. I'm sure that's how the Foreign Office will be seeing it, to start saying, well, we can help you in this job in certain parts of the world. And I think we're already starting to see that with Lord Cameron in the Red Sea, where there's talk about Britain taking part in action to push back at these Houthi rebels in Yemen. So I, I wonder, though, when I hear you talking, Helen, I wonder whether it really is all about kind of this main rivalry between the United States and China and China essentially trying to carve out its own bigger sphere of influence in the in the South China Sea, a maritime power as well as being a land power looking at, you know, at, with its land routes over into Europe. And I wonder whether that's really how we have to see we have to see this moment in history, both 2023 and into 2024, and all these kind of critical moments that we're going to see with with Taiwan, with the Philippines. You know, if, if America is having military bases in the Philippines and the Chinese are saying that it's uh, unacceptable, if we've got this ongoing conflict in Taiwan that has repercussions into Japan, and then if you th- even if you think about the, the Russian-Ukraine war and the, and the problems in the Black Sea, and through, and then these issues through the Red Sea. I mean, China is ultimately, I've seen some figures, I think, that were published this week, has increased its support to Russia dramatically since the start of the Russian-Ukraine war. So, I mean, even even this war in, in Europe, on the edges of Europe, we might better understand it almost as a kind of proxy war, or certainly it's linked to to China and it's in its attempts to try and bog down the United States in different parts of the world so that it can free itself a bit more in its own in Asia. I mean, I think that there's one way of of looking at this, and I'm not sure that I'm entirely really convinced by it, but you can see why people might think this, which would say that the the three big points of conflict: Ukraine, Israel, Hamas, and China Taiwan, or the China Taiwan issue, perhaps put it better, put it like that in relation to the United States, are, are linked by an axis that runs not just Russia China, but Russia China Iran. So obviously, Iran being a pretty important backer, the central backer of Hamas. And there clearly are some unanswered questions still about what the relationship is between. Iran and Hamas in terms of the actual slaughter on the, the 7th of October by Hamas. 
and it's quite possible that Iran was more involved in that than than looked perhaps on the than was immediately concluded. And if you look at it that way, then you would say, well, look, Russia's pushing against Ukraine, Iran's pushing against Israel, and that China might, in the aftermath of the election in Taiwan on the 13th of January, become more confrontational, depending obviously on what the outcome of that might be, and that there's some concerted coordination between Russia, Iran and China. And obviously, I think I would be wrong just to say that well, that's just straightforwardly like wrong. It's a, it's a hypothesis that is, is worth keeping an open mind about. I think, though, one thing that is interesting is the Middle East one in terms of the complexities of that for China in relation to the maritime power question. Because what's at the heart of this, I think, where maritime power is concerned is, is that the United States is still playing that role of being the, the world's naval policeman, if you like, on which the world economy still depends. But actually, American trade is much less affected by events directly anyway in the Red Sea and in the Persian Gulf than either European trade or China's trade. Now, China has built up some naval power and bases in relation to the the Red Sea on the African side. But it's not really clear, I think, that China wants to take over from the United States as having the responsibility for keeping these shipping lanes open. And it's certainly not clear, I think, that the United States would want China to do that because does the Americans really want China to be the dominant naval power in the in the Middle East and I think that this is where the American election may well have some significance because if we go back to 2019 so the last time that shipping lanes in the Middle East was a really big deal summer of 2019 when Iran was attacking shipping in the Persian Gulf and then blew up Saudi oil or probably the Houthis did the oil facility on the Persian Gulf. Trump was then using his, his Twitter account as it then was to complain about the fact that the American Navy was having to basically do the job for China and Japan. It didn't actually bring the Europeans into that. So this is a kind of question that Trump's got some history about. Um, now, as we know, a lot of Trump in his foreign policy was, was bluster last time. But if we think about the stakes for the coming American election in foreign policy terms, I'd say that in any event in which Trump were to become American president again, and obviously there's lots of reasons why that might not be the case, including his ability to be on the ballot, is that is much more likely, I think, to be the flashpoint than questions about actually NATO, where it can be more, will be more constrained um, by Congress. And this, I think, then raises questions for, for a country like Britain that has got more involved since the latter years of the coalition, so when Cameron was prime minister back around the Red Sea in the in the Persian Gulf, is is what happens if an American president actually says, well, actually, the Europeans have got to do more of this. Helen, it's kind of, there's a great irony here. It's like a, almost like a reverse Suez, that would be, you know, where the Americans say, well, you've got to get back involved. I mean, it is a really fascinating question that for Donald Trump and Trumpism, isn't it? Because his very 
point, one of the very his his sort of core points about foreign policy is that the United States is is being treated like a mug. You know, it has to go and do the world's business for it. It has to keep shipping lanes open. And who benefits from that? China, who sends all of its goods to Europe, where Europe is getting a free ride and being defended by the United States, and the United States is protecting, is enabling China's rise as an industrial power. And so in some sense, you could see a very Trumpian logic, but just saying, well, you know, sod the Red Sea, if it's the more chaos there, the better for the United States, we can become the shipping superpower. You know, manufacturing can be reshored back to the United States and we can export it from here without the threat of, you know, Houthi rebels and all of that. And it can be almost like a tool in its war against China. But the consequence of that, as you say, is that then China or Europe would have to step into the breach and the United States would have to pull back and give up some of its its geopolitical power, which is this maritime power. And so that, I mean, that there is going to be an absolutely crucial question for the American electorate, but it may not even be presented as such in the US election. You know, what is the the future of American power going to look like? I mean, perhaps we should end the first half there and turn to Britain in particular, like we said, in the second half, and also maybe cast our mind forward to some of these other sort of pinch point moments in 2024 in the second half. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back, everybody. So in that first half there, we spoke mostly about geopolitics and foreign policy, but we're going to turn to British domestic policy in this half. So, I mean, 2023, I was writing about this for Unheard recently. It's remarkably sort of domestic focused with inflation targets and targets to cut the debt and to grow the economy and to deal with the small boats crisis. It's been all very sort of inward focused. I mean, perhaps that's going to change in 2024. But when I was looking back, Helen, over 2023, it seemed to me that you could almost break it down into three distinct periods. You had a sort of period where Rishi Sunak was in, a, in what I think of as kind of technocratic phase where he was setting these targets and driving at them quite hard. And then you had phase where kind of reality really bit for him and it was obviously very difficult and he was struggling to meet them and then you had what I sort of term the sort of desperate reset phase where he became a bit harder edged in his politics and was moving away from the net zero targets and being quite hardline on this question of the Rwanda deal and even sounding quite sort of Cummings-like in his speech to conference, which we've subsequently uh, discovered might have been actually influenced by Cummings himself, the pair having met. 
And that, that's how I thought about the year. But I think another way to think about the year is that there is this just sort of economic squeeze on the British electorate that is just very difficult for any prime minister to really be popular while this is going on. Your interest rates are being jacked up every time from almost almost zero to over 5%. And this is a massive increase in people's mortgages. Inflation is coming down through this time, but it's very high throughout 2023 and particularly high, you know, with supermarket bills, which I think is still running way above uh, the inflation target. So in that context, you know, it's, it's understandable when you think about it, why Rishi Sunak's poll ratings are so low. The fact is people are poorer than they were and their public services are worse. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's worth trying to, in a way, like unpick what's gone on in, in British politics for the Conservative government in the kind of context in which we've been talking about and perhaps the comparison that is makes at least some sense, most directly anyway, is the American one where Biden, despite actually having an economic performance, which in a number of ways is like clearly superior to the, the British economy's performance during the time in which he's been in office, is also being like politically struggling. I think what sets Britain apart, though, and it's hard to think what a comparable example is, is really what happened during 2022 in Britain in terms of that turnover of prime ministers of three in the space of a few months. And that what we've seen during the course of 2023 is that Sunak has not really any time at all, I would say, been able to improve the Conservatives' position. And I don't think that that is simply a function of the economic difficulties. I think it's a function of the fact that the Conservatives' governing competence was just blown apart by the conjunction of the latter part of the pandemic in relation to Johnson and Partygate, and then the fallout of that through Johnson's final exit from office Prime Ministerial Office last year and then what happened during Liz Truss's premiership. So in one sense, I would say that it would be unrealistic of anybody to have thought that Sunak could really change that much for the Conservatives. On the other hand, I think that there is a, a, a sort of more common pattern that does reflect the world more generally of just how hard it is for parties in government in Europe and the United States to look like that they are governed competently in relation to the economy. There are just too many, if you like, hazards to navigate around. They're at the mercy of inflation being caused by, in some sense, by geopolitical events and the underlying energy questions around that. So when, like Sunak, as you just said, Tom makes promises at the beginning of the year and says we're going to halve inflation, well, actually he succeeded in halving inflation if you look at like what it was in January 2023 compared to what it is now. But it, it doesn't look like it's anything to do with Sunak. It doesn't even really look like it's anything to do with the Bank of England. And after all, it's the Bank of England that has a responsibility, not the politicians, first and foremost, for dealing with inflation. So in that sense, I think there's just... And Britain just somehow exemplifies it's a kind of like disconnect between what's actually going on and the way in which the, the politicians 
present themselves as acting because there's a kind of fakery to it in that sense and i mean there's something about that quite specific in the sense is that they just can't do the things that they say that they're going that they promise that they're, they're going to do because the bigger forces at work i think then they can readily influence now that doesn't mean that they've got no political choices to make it doesn't mean that they can't make things better for them for themselves or make some things somewhat worse for themselves it just means i think that there's a big disjunction between the language in which democratic politics is taking place in which these elections will occur during the course of this year and the the fundamental difficulty of making decisions governing decisions in the context of the world as it is right now yeah i mean on the inflation question that's obviously true isn't it if you think about sunak is you, you know in danger of seeing inflation rise again through events beyond his control as we've talked about in the black sea and the red sea and you know, even potentially in the South China Sea, there are plenty of things that could happen that he has little control over. I mean, perhaps he has some control over it in being able to keep those shipping lanes open. So he will be forced to make decisions that perhaps he, he never thought he'd have to make. But he is not ultimately in control of that target that he set. I mean, I'm just casting back, Helen, to his poll ratings. And as you said, the sort of precipitous decline in the Tory rating towards the end of Boris Johnson's reign and then through trusses. What I was struck by when I went back to look at the polls, and you can, if you go onto YouGov, there's a good poll tracker that shows the ratings right from the beginning of Boris Johnson's, you know, when he won in in 2019 all the way through to today. And what is quite clear is that Boris Johnson's came down a lot towards the end through Partygate and all of that. But actually, they weren't anywhere near as bad as they are today, even at the sort of the worst of his of that crisis, right at the end when he eventually was forced to go. They drop to, I think, 18% in the polls. I think that's the lowest from memory during the trust financial crisis. And it's I think it's really that moment, more than any, that has created this kind of existential problem for the Conservative Party. Now, Sunak looked like he was on his way back to recovering the Tory poll lead, back up to something. It was, I think he was aiming back towards the 30s at some point earlier in the year, in 2023, in sort of April, May from, from memory. So he'd gone from something like 18% up to 24, 25. So it looked like the trajectory was, was you know, back towards narrowing the polls. But it's from that moment in about April, May, that he then starts to decline again. And he's back down towards about 20% in the polls today, depending on on, on which poll rating you look at. And Labour's again, Labour shoots up during the trust financial crisis up to above 40%, I I think. I think it reaches some crazy number like 48% at that moment and has since dropped down. But there's been a real stabilisation in 2023 at about a 20-point gap, I think, between the two parties. And that is what I think is at the heart of Sunak's political problem, really. I mean, I remember reading this biography of Harold Wilson by Ben Pimlock, and he has this line in there that, you know, that the iron rule of British politics is that a prime minister starts to have political problems when his poll ratings plummet. And, you know, that seems to be Sunak's 
problem. He was he was quite safe, and and when he when he looked like he was narrowing the pole lead, and the momentum was in the right direction, and then when it fell away, and it looked like he wasn't making any inroads then Conservative MPs started to panic. Well, I, I think, again, there is some particularity to the the British case here, which, again, I, I don't think like fits when you, when you look across the Atlantic. And that is that the Conservatives won the election in 19 with the kind of coalition that they'd never really quite assembled before. And it was dependent upon two things, the Brexit question and the Corbyn question the Corbyn question was removed and once the United Kingdom did leave the European Union the impasse about whether we were going to leave the European Union was over then the Brexit question regardless of what anyone subsequently thought about the Brexit question just couldn't work for the Conservatives in the same way in which it could when there was the Labour Party and Parliament could be presented as obstructing the referendum result and what we've seen, and I don't think that in this respect, Rishi Sunak is really any different than Liz Truss, because I think this came out very clearly in the leadership election between them prior to Liz Truss becoming prime minister, is, is neither of them were really interested in that electoral coalition. They didn't know what to do with it. In some sense, they've wanted to repudiate it. And that, I think, is in, in a way, was just a kind of impossible... Once that was, Once that was the position that the Conservative Party ended up with at the top, I don't really see how that they could recover from that because there's no like plan B of what this alternative coalition was. Even if you look at the, the coalition that Cameron assembled off about 37% of the vote in 2015, it was very dependent on being able to pick off those Liberal Democrat seats through the use of the union question and the idea that electing the Labour Party was going to bring the SNP to influence in Westminster with it. And the union question just cannot be used in the same way for the Conservative Party in which it was back in 2015, because obviously one of the other things that's happened pretty significantly for the future of UK politics during the course of, of 2023 was the effective collapse of the, not complete collapse, but serious, serious problems for the SNP. And that really changes the electoral landscape. I mean, both because it positively helps the Labour Party, but also just because it just reinforces this question of like, well, what is the basis on which the Conservatives construct a winning coalition? Because the issues that they've been using to do with that, the Union, Brexit, Corbyn, they're just not available for them. And so that leaves them stuck with this problem of economic insecurity compounded you know pretty much most of the time by risks from the the geopolitical um, environment that are more than I think capable of generating really severe problems for them during the course of 2024 I mean the corollary of that though is that say the election came early in in relatively early in the year in the United Kingdom and so the Labour Party were in office by the time we're having this conversation next year if we have it that we could well be talking about the same kind of problem because in that sense it is structural facing politicians in office in Britain and other in other Western countries. But I think it also raises the question of like, well, are we going to continue in Britain with a politics domestically that is kind of detached in the way in which the politicians talk from these bigger geopolitical questions? Or is the geopolitics actually going to come crashing in to the British election 
during the course of 2024. And we know, I think, that the geopolitics is going to go is going to be pretty pivotal to the American election because Trump does talk a very different geopolitical language than um, Biden does, assuming for the moment that they are the two candidates. In Britain, we don't see the two parties really talking different languages about geopolitics. But at a certain point, I think, choices will need will have to be made about what Britain does, particularly, I think, probably in relation to the, the Middle East. And then that becomes, the question becomes, well, will we see that as part of electoral politics? Because it has such economic consequences, not because it matters in itself that people are going to get really, voters are going to get really worked up about the geopolitical alignments in the Middle East. But if what's at issue is, does Britain have to play a part in keeping the shipping routes open in the the Middle East? And that is going to be a question that will matter in the UK election. Yeah, I mean, and Donald Trump, of course, will be an issue. He'll be a much more emotive issue, I guess, in the election, especially if it's called in October or November or even early December, then it's going to be pretty much aligned with the US election. And that hasn't happened for a long time where they're so aligned. And obviously that question will be, how are you going to deal with Donald Trump? You know, are you aligned with him? Who do you want to support? I mean, they'll be able to dodge and weave out of that out of that question. But I, I wonder, Helen, whether it's, it's even more fundamental for Britain. It's post-Brexit. I've always been struck by this Danny Roderick trilemma that he talks about, which is, In a globalized world, you can't have sovereignty, democracy, and economic globalization together. You have to choose to sacrifice one of those or a bit of one of them. The more democratic and sovereign you are, the less efficient, you know, efficiently plugged into the world economy you are. And the more you take global rules, the less obviously you have to say over them domestically. And I think with Britain, Brexit is a kind of answer to that question but it's not a permanent answer that's the kind of point it's like a permanent challenge that we face and i think outside of the european union because the european union in a way is another attempt to answer that trilemma it just extends it into a massive regional block over which you have uh, a say over those over those regional rules and the eu then says well then the the beauty of doing that is then you can then affect global rules that we can be a a regular superpower and so you can kind of get around that trilemma i mean i i don't i don't think that's that's quite right i don't think you can ever get around the trilemma you just have to you have to choose which leg of that trilemma you're you're most comfortable giving away a bit of a bit of control over but for britain it's obviously much more heightened now that we've left the eu and you kind of yet to see it play out in domestic politics in a real way. I think at the moment you have the Labour Party and the Conservative Party are really pretty much aligned on most foreign policy issues. You know, there's no question about the special relationship. There is an emerging, pretty much an emerging consensus that we we want a close relationship as close as possible with the EU. We There's no disagreements on questions of Ukraine. There's an emerging consensus, I think, even on China, that we have to be much more hawkish, even if we want to maintain as open an economic relation as we can, sort of practically. But I think this this question will come about more and more. You know, how much are we going to align with European rules that we don't any longer have a say over for the sake of easing border controls, not just in Northern Ireland, between Britain and Northern Ireland, but also at the border in Dover, 
where you know it's pre- it's already proving very difficult for us to to manage this border and so I, I guess that is going to be an interesting divide that starts to open up i think between the labor party and the conservative party now i don't know whether it's going to open up in 2024 before the election i think keir starmer is very keen that it doesn't open up but you could then see it start to open up from that point on as the conservative party essentially take the view that you sacrifice economic friction would you accept economic friction for the sake of democratic control and the Labour Party move in the opposite direction? Yeah, I mean, I think though there may be something not deeper but more complicated underlying the question of the European orientation because one way of looking at all this would be to say that actually what we've ended up with over the, particularly actually from the beginning of 2023, with it was February, wasn't it, the Windsor framework on Northern Ireland, is that we have ended up moving positions for the last, since Johnson left office, closer to the Americans across the board. So if we, I mean, some of this is, is through Johnson. So on China, AUKUS would be, I think, the example on the question um, of the European Union, the Windsor framework and the having to basically be quite responsive to the Biden administration's position on Northern Ireland um, being the, the crucial example. And we didn't really diverge from the position of the Americans on the Middle East, with the exception of not being on side with Trump on the Iran, ending the Iran nuclear deal in like 2018, but we'd been a a quite willing partner in the maritime coalition that the Biden administration's put together, I think it's Operation Prosperity, that's not quite the right name for it, in terms of providing essentially escorts for shipping through the, the, the Red Sea after the Houthi attacks. So if, if you think with it through that lens of like, actually, and then actually that there's now sort of consensus between the parties over all those positions, then this American election becomes really, really crucial um, because Trump is likely, if he were, even if he's just the candidate and that debate is taking place in the United States through the autumn, none of these things can be quite taken for granted in anything like the same way. So then it becomes a bit difficult, I think, for the, the British politicians just to say, oh, we're essentially just lined up with America. Because what America mean what being lined up with America means is going to be really, really contested. And it's then hard to see, I think, how those divisions can be kept out of this British election. I mean, maybe there's a scenario in which it does, but the more what you were saying, Dom, about, you know, like the timing, I mean, even if a part of the election's campaigns are going on at the same time, and the Americans will be in action won't it by the general election part of it i mean by that not the the primaries part of it will be in action from like august through to or july august through to november so any election in britain in that time period is going to run into the american election even if they're not held in the same month or in the same six week period i think that it's really going to be a really quite important factor in not necessarily in the actual outcome because that doesn't I think nothing about that changes just how difficulties the Conservatives 
face, but the structure of the contests that will take place and then what the consequences of the election are for the, the likely Labour government, that I think is just can't be detached from this bigger geopolitical picture and the question of American power being contested in this time of, or the purpose of American power being contested in this time of geopolitical turbulence. Yeah, and and Helen, I mean, I, I cast my mind back actually to Trump's first term because I, it, one way I guess that this question will be framed is, well, I, do you want to move closer to Europe or do you want to stick with this, with the United States, this choice that you've that you've made and stuck to? over decades, essentially, we've always tried to, to keep the two together and, and have tried to avoid having to make a, a choice. But when even Tony Blair, one of our most pro-European prime ministers, perhaps the second most pro-European prime minister we've ever had, when he faced the choice in 2003, he chose the United States over Europe. So, and, and since Brexit, as you say, we've moved more into line with American foreign policy. Now, are our politicians then going to face this question, well, are you going to stick with that under Donald Trump as he veers off into a completely new direction from for American uh, policy? But in it, it, in one sense, it will be easy for our politicians to say, "Oh no, we you know we can we can ride this out, and we will stick with our European friends on on certain important questions." And but I, I think back to the questions over Huawei, the Iran nuclear deal in Trump's first term, and we tried that strategy, and we said, "No, we're not going to be pushed around. We're not going to change our policy. We'll stick with the the Europeans on this." And we tried to set up this rival trading system where we could prop up the Iranian nuclear deal, you know, trading with Iran. And this was something that the Brits, the French and the Germans tried to do together. And it just collapsed because we ultimately, none of us, had the power to get around America's financial might. And then Trump did something similar over Huawei, where he eventually forced us into line by sanctioning Huawei to the point where we just couldn't guarantee Huawei's safety in our infrastructure. And so he got his way on that question. So in, again, coming back to something that you said earlier in this podcast again, Helen, which is the kind of unreality in a way of what our politicians say. And I wonder if we'll see more of that unreality play out in a way in that they will try to claim that we're able to make some autonomous decision over our alliance with the United States or Europe and, where, and you know whether we can choose between them or not. But perhaps the truth is we just can't. And actually, we are going to be battered by the, the, the sort of Trump storm, whatever we choose, whatever we choose. And ultimately, we're probably going to have to stick with him, whether we like it or not. Well, I still think we shouldn't get carried away with the idea that Trump will necessarily win the American. I, I think that the whole issue of, of what happens in the American election is is there are so many uh, uncertainties around that. I mean, aside from anything else, because we could obviously spend quite a bit more time talking about this in terms of what happened in, in 2023, which in a way was a year of Donald Trump's resurgence because he looked like he was politically defeated at the end of 2022 after the midterm elections. And then there was obviously this set of legal cases against him. So there's something quite deep in some sense dark and difficult like playing out in 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 american politics i mean they are never probably in their history are going to have to have get through such a difficult election as this just in terms of like in some sense how the actual process of it 
is going to to work so there's i think a lot of potential for or some potential at least for spillover just from that side of it back into everybody else's politics i think though the thing that means that in the middle east what went on in the in the trump presidency last time is different than this time is the iran question because at the center of the iran question last time was the nuclear deal and at the center of the iran question this time is the israel hamas war and the houthis in, in relation to the red sea so in that sense it's at its center is iran's extra territorial activities and i'm not so sure that in a circumstance in which trump was president again whether we could just like read off from the way in which he handled middle eastern questions this respect in this respect and crucially the way in which the european union and britain lined up in trying to thwart him over the nuclear arms deal whether you could just read a straight like europe versus trump conflict this time i think it would be quite a lot more quite a lot more complicated and the the shipping questions around the red sea are also quite divisive within europe particularly i think in the franco-german um relationship so i don't think it would just be quite so a binary choice for the british government having said that it would be really hard choices that were being made and in this sense i think that we might say that what we saw in 2023 in uk politics was a certain kind of stasis you know a weak conservative party against a Labour Party that was strengthened by its opponents' weakness and not just the Conservatives, but the SNPs too, without really being tested in any shape or form in terms of what it might like be like as a as a governing party. Again, looking like we're heading to a straightforward election in which Labour wins a reasonably sized majority, and yet it could be that actually this is the year in which the outside world comes like crashing back into like British politics, not necessarily to change the outcome of what would seem to be the likely outcome of the um, election, but just com- really radically to reconfigure the space in which the next British government won't make choices. Well, I mean, Helen, if that is true, I mean, the one thing that it's good for is good for this podcast, I guess, in that that is our forte. I mean, you and I did think about when we thought about recording this episode, casting our minds back and thinking about what it's been like to record these times. And we started in, in May, actually, and it is just listening to you there. It is dramatic how much the world has shifted or seems to be shifting. I mean, maybe this is the conceit of of all generations that you think you, you're living through a particularly special time because it makes you feel particularly special yourself. I mean, maybe that's, what, that's how everyone feels. But it does nevertheless feel to me that there is a genuine kind of global shift happening from, Amer- or at least a challenge to American power that doesn't seem to have happened to quite this degree since 1990, would you say? And so I think that is completely fascinating how then it kind of affects all of our 
all of these different elections that are going to be happening in, in 2024, including our own, they seem so buffeted by this looming presence of Donald Trump, obviously, but then also this competition, particularly with China and Russia to try and free themselves from from American dominance. I mean, when I think back, Helen, one of the things that I think we could have talked about, but we decided to save for next year is this figure of Trump himself. I mean, that's something that I think I'd like to dig into. I, I, I'm, I mean, I'm fascinated by the, the psychology of him, the instincts of him, what kind of, you know, how singular is he to America, but also in America, you know, how singular is this figure of Donald Trump? I mean, I think there have been lots of figures like him that emerged it, but mostly in kind of governor races or become senators, they haven't ever got to this level and been quite this consequential. I mean, what I mean, do you, what are the things that you think we we kind of missed or should have talked about over the past year? Well, I think that we didn't obviously miss what's going on with Donald Trump. I think we just kept holding back from spending a lot of time on essentially the American election coming this year, partly because. There was going to be a lot of time to talk about it in 20. But also, I think it's quite difficult to um, talk about it. I still think it's actually quite difficult to talk about it because we're trying to talk about an election in which legal questions are really going to be very much to the fore. And that isn't just the fact that Trump is subject to legal prosecution, as we know, but the attempts to use the law to remove him from the ballot in a number of State. So there's a great deal, I think, in talking about Trump that still gets us into like quite, you know, into essentially being a bit speculative. And I, I don't quite think the shape of the American election is clearly including Trump's like role in it. I mean, I think that we've mentioned this today. I think that when we talked about China and talked about not in any detail Taiwan questions, I think we were missing how important the Philippines was becoming to that story. I think that we touched on in one episode, didn't we? We touched on um, the coups in, in West Africa. I think that there are other parts of Africa, particularly Sudan, where it's been a, a quite dreadful year in terms of the suffering and in terms of just what's happened in that country. And it may be, given you know, Sudan's position in like, relating to the Red Sea, that during the course of 2024, that the Sudan story and the Red Sea story might come together more. I mean, I don't feel particularly well qualified to say anything on that. But I think one thing I would draw out in terms of, of what we have ended up talking about is that we did want to talk about Britain and we did want to talk about geopolitics and probably the ratio has been a bit more geopolitics than perhaps we might have expected and I think that is saying something is quite like revealing like in itself sometimes we'd have ideas for episode and then we get pulled back into something that looked pretty geopolitically important I mean I think the coups would be in in particular the Niger coup would be a good example of that and I think as well, you've a bit touched on that in one of the things that you said earlier today, um, Tom, is there's lots of threads that look like they're quite separate on the surface that we've talked about that actually end up 
being connected. And I think we've tried to to do something of that today with the way in which we've talked about the maritime trade issue. And we're going to, in our next episode, concentrate on one of those choke points in terms of global trade, and that's the Red Sea and the Suez Canal. And that's in part, I think, because we spent actually the number of times the Suez Canal has come up has been quite considerable, I think. So we thought we'd try and pull all that together in the context, both of the history, but also in the context of what's presently going on in the the Red Sea. So I think that in that sense, I think that um, in a sense, the project of the of this podcast has become like to try to connect things together. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I was just thinking there, Helen, I think we've, we'd spoke about doing an episode on uh, Northern Ireland, on Sinn Féin in Ireland itself, on Scotland and the Union. We've, we've, I think we have certainly a number of other episodes where we've, we've thought about covering British politics and then the world just kind of flooded into us. I mean, we particularly, obviously, in Israel and, and Gaza, where it was just obviously the most important story in the world. And then it was ricocheting into our own politics, you know, on our own streets and was crucial in the removal of a home secretary in Britain, something that was happening far away. And I think some of the other episodes where we thought about or we thought we needed to to do something on and then again were overwhelmed by some immediate crisis. We talked about Qatar. We talked, I mean, at one point, Venezuela looked like it was going to invade its its neighbor in, in South America. And then I think this question of, you know, Armenia and Azerbaijan, which which you touched on quite a few times in the podcast and Turkey in particular, and how important that was to what was going on in either the Russia-Ukraine war, where Turkey was becoming an increasingly important player, but also in North Africa and West Africa, where Turkey's power was growing, particularly in the Sahel. Yeah, and then just and just some of these, this question of Azerbaijan as well, it just seems, when you look at the numbers, I saw it this morning, I think it was at 100,000 Armenians that had been removed from from their land. I mean, that is massive amounts of, that's a huge displacement of people that doesn't get anywhere near the coverage like Sudan as the question of Israel and Gaza. I mean, there's so much for us to touch on, but I, I think you're right. I think in the end, I imagine that this podcast is going to be drawn more and more to these global events and how they're buffeting us back here. And on that note, Helen, I think we should finish for this week. I think that was quite a long episode. I hope you all enjoyed it. We really wanted to try and pull the camera back as much as we can. I mean, that is the aim of this podcast, not to get too bogged down in the day-to-day, who's up and who's down and all of that, but try to try to figure out what's connecting all of these stories, how it makes sense, how can we think about these things differently so we're going to do that next week with this crisis in the red sea and how britain is getting involved and what are the options there and what it means happy new year again thank you so much to all of you who have listened throughout last year i hope you stick with us in 2024 please do follow and crucially i've been told it's really important if you can go on to wherever you get your podcasts and give us a five-star rating. Thank you so much and see you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 
luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.